Welcome to episode 111 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. I'm Steve Garshinsky. Joining me today, as always, are J.P. Breen and Ryan Top. And uh, I guess it's... This it's, is the funeral episode, right? It is, is, yeah. This is our eulogy for the season? Yeah, Would I you mean, say that or is... is well, we're going to talk more about the uh, whole season next week. This is more of like the eulogy for the game. Sure. Just that. <laughs> Just the game. So... <laughs> And JP already got some of his thoughts out. We had our the uh, mini pod uh, midweek that you got to kind of do the immediate reaction to it. Yeah, it was it was good to get it out. I I wish I actually would have like written some stuff down instead of just doing it free form, as I would have actually articulated some things a little bit better. But oh, now you get it, your second bite at the apple. Yeah, but it was it was pretty good uh, in terms of. Uh, being able to to get things out in terms of what people were were saying that they wanted, so nice to be able to kind of reflect on the game a little bit and think about uh, I don't know Milwaukee's sadness and grief. Oh, we have a question about that. <laughs> Good. Well, well, I saw that one. There's one of the radio chuckleheads had that this week, this past week about like, oh, another horrible loss. How can we keep dealing with this? And it's like they were in the playoffs again. They were in the playoffs again, it was, and, and it was it was another fantastic September. They flew past teams to get into the playoffs, and yeah, the wild card game didn't go how we wanted it to. But I mean, overall, the Brewers were there. You, you don't have a shot at a World Series if you don't get into the postseason to begin with. So they at yeah. least had that. And when you're heading into the postseason without your best player by far, without one of the best players in baseball, one of the top couple guys in baseball, two three guys, when you don't have that. When you've got your best starting pitcher still not like at full strength, like he's still working on building up, you know, because Woodruff would have gone longer in that game had he had more stamina and had which will get built up to it. Yeah. Yeah. But like and you're missing your stud closer all season like you had enough things that kind of went wrong this year that getting into the playoffs in a very tough division was still a very good thing. I mean, it was an accomplishment. 89 wins is nothing to sneeze at in that division, in that league, the way things played out this year. So, Well, and I, I would have to say, too, that kind of doing the woe is me thing about Milwaukee doesn't pay attention to a lot of other small market franchises. Like, go tell San Diego that you're upset that you made the playoffs two years in a row and that, like, everything doesn't work. That I mean, when was the last time that the Padres made the playoffs? Uh, 2010-ish, nine, somewhere in there. The Mariners haven't made it since 2001. Yeah, they haven't, but they they have made a World Series more recently. Are the Mariners the new long streak for playoff droughts? Uh, yeah, they're okay. the long streak at the moment. I'm just saying because it was they the have Brewers, been a while. At the Brewers point. were for so long, and now we've kind of lost that. But like I said, we'll get into more of the wild card here uh, coming up, and that's going to primarily be the topic. We're going to talk about the wild card game today. Next week, we'll do a bit of our season wrap-up, and we'll also do the prop bets uh, wrap-up next We're, week. We think we can get Andy. We were fingers crossed that, that it's going to work That's part out. of it. We wanted to make sure Andy was available for that as well. Um, and that way, you know, when we're talking about the season, we can kind of talk about how things went when we go through the prop bets as well. So even though we have the results, we know who won. We know which of us sitting here is the best. Uh, well, we don't yet. Remember? It's still to be determined by the... Uh, there was still one. Did we have a tie thing. break? Or no? no there was what an was MVP question. Oh, MVP. 
but I don't think that actually differentiated you two at all. Uh, and <laughs> I would like to point out that I am comfortably in last and don't need to wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. Steve and I were both. Did we, we ended up tied, right? Yes, we both did well. We both did well. Yeah. We did we not didn't win. Do, we didn't do the best. No, we didn't win. We didn't do the best of the larger group of uh, podcast tailgate listener. podcasters, um, but we did well. So uh, yeah. anyways, look for that next week. Uh, remember, you can help fans uh, find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can follow the three of us on Twitter. JP is Ghost Runner on second base. Runner. Ryan, runner. <laughs> Run, runner top over here. Uh, Ryan is at RD Top with two P's. And I'm Steve Garshinsky. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast network, you can visit patreon.com slash tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons, which we're going to have to redo these names. Oh, yeah, we will. I've been thinking about it. So we, hopefully we come up with something soon. But currently, it's the ball and glove level patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast and also the reporting is eligible weekly Packers preview, which Paul's done a pretty good job with those so far. If, if you've been curi- curious how the game's going to play out, you want to have an idea going into it? He's been uh, he's been on it every time. He's been Nostradamus like. Yeah, I mean, the the predictions haven't like necessarily lined up with wins and losses, but as far as how the game has played out, he's been he's been on that pretty well. So I, I suggest uh, subscribing to that if you can. Uh, it's worth it. And then also, obviously, the the general reporting is eligible podcast comes out every week on Wednesday afternoons. So look for that as well. Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English Hall Malt Bombs and Perfectly Balanced Hop Grenades. You know them for the great beers like Dragon Flute Block Party and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. On Friday, October 11th, Carbon 4 is releasing a limited pilot batch of strawberry vanilla cream ale. Hmm, that sounds yummy. Gotta go to the brewery for this one. Limited pilot batch. You're not gonna find that in stores. It's not gonna be anywhere else. So head over to Kinsman Boulevard for that one. JP, what do you think? You, you that that tempt you a little bit? Do you like strawberries? Do you like vanilla? I don't know. I was zoning out while you were doing that. <laughs> strawberries and cream sounds good though. Like I, strawberries and cream is legit legit food. I get to the beer read and JP's like, nah. Mm, not not too worried. That's a Ryan and Steve thing. Strawberry cream ale. No? Yeah? Maybe? Strawberry vanilla cream ale. Sorry. Sounds terrible, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It is probably delicious, and you can only get it at the brewery, so check out uh, Carbon 4 on Kidspin Boulevard on Madison's east side. As always, get 20% off merch in the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKETailgate. Check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer, brilliance. I would say, like, see, the thing is, is obviously don't have too much of a of, of a conception of you know cream ales more generally but what i hear in my head is cream soda and cream soda is disgusting oh that's a bad opinion that is a straight up bad food opinion what that soda is disgusting yeah cream soda is delicious you have okay. terrible taste in things yeah but cream soda is good i agree <laughs> what you i don't know, want cream you're... soda but cream ale is not like cream soda uh generally it's the grains that are used in it are different than your typical uh ales and ipas and all that stuff so 
gives a little sweeter flavor to begin with. But obviously, if it's strawberry and vanilla, this should be a very tasty, I don't know, what we call it, a, uh, a after-dinner beverage, kind of a dessert beer. I don't know. It it sounds somewhat, I mean, with a, being a cream, so it's, it's a, it fits for the fall. Like, it's not a Marzen, but it, it fits for the fall. So, I don't know. I don't think you'd want to drink more than a couple of them. Fits for the fall. I don't know. Everything's pumpkin right now. Yeah, which is awful. Legitimately pumpkin pumpkin flavor, awful. No, you're wrong about that. I enjoy having maybe one. I don't. It's when you got to come home with like a six pack of them. I'm like, oh, I had the one. And I'm, I'm done no, I'm, with this now. No, I'm working my way through the rest of these. I, I just, just want a regular, uh, regular beer. What do I, we don't, ha- I don't care what it is. Like, it's just... Anything pumpkin flavor is just not my thing. I don't like pumpkin muffins, even though everybody tells me my mom's pumpkin muffins are like the best thing in the world. You don't like your mom's muffins? I've are, I've never enjoyed the pumpkin muffins. You want to really, Steve? Really? We're moving. You're not gonna go munch a little bit on your mom's muffins? Okay, we're what deleting about, this. They're Jesus. pumpkin pumpkin muffins. Jesus. What about? Uh, they what probably about got that pumpkin spice. What about what about pumpkin pie? Uh, never been a fan. Sweet never potato pie, also never been a fan. That's ridiculous. You're missing I don't, out. Sweet potatoes are not really my thing. You are missing out, and we are way off topic there. Because again, <laughs> if you want to try that strawberry vanilla cream ale at Carbon Four, check it out. Well, we Carbon Four dot com. Beer brilliance. We got to bring the comedy before we bring the pain. Steve. Jesus Christ! I'm trying to wrap this I up. I know, I know. We but we got to bring the comedy before we bring the pain. So. Exactly. And on to the pain, we have the wild card game from, what was that? It was Tuesday some, night. It was a Tuesday night. It seems like a long time ago now. <sighs> I tried to block it out um, because it was, it was a good game until our hearts were ripped out at the end. Yes, it, it very much was the Ralph Wiggum. Like, and here's the moment you can see his heart breaking. <laughs> like, <laughs> just his heart tearing apart. Exactly. Um, so the Brewers uh, got off to a good start against Scherzer. Uh, Grandall hit his... Uh, two-run home run. Well, and we got to give Trent Grisham uh, credit for drawing a walk to get on base. Right off the bat, yep. Because it's one thing to hit home runs against guys in, in 2019. Uh, it's another to actually like have base runners on. Um, so Grisham gets on base. Grandall hits a two-run homer. We get a Thames home run in the second inning off Scherzer. So, um, you know, it looked like they were getting to him. At least... JP, when you're facing Max Scherzer, even a Max Scherzer that struggled in the second uh, half of the season here, um, how would you say the Brewers' approach was against him? Because again, they got the home runs, but you know Scherzer also had some success with strikeouts. He was keeping guys off base as well. Yeah, I mean, in large part, I think, especially in a one-game playoff, you just you have to. I, I don't want to say focus on home runs like because a lot of people are going would roll their eyes on that. But you need to take it, the idea that you're going to string five or six base runners in a row in an inning against Max Scherzer is just unrealistic. And so in the exact same way that you see a lot of people try to get to somebody like Josh Hader early and recognize that your best kind of uh, run scoring possibility against Josh Hader in general is hitting a home run because in general you're not going to get a bunch of base hits in a row. That's why we constantly see team or batters like sell out against Hader on that first fastball they're going to get. Absolutely, yeah. And they ju- and I think it was Marwin Gonzalez earlier this year for the Twins that actually like explicitly said so after at the beginning. He was just like I looked fastball and just swung as hard as I could and hope I hit it. And uh and he was like I got lucky that it was down in the zone and I just I I connected. And 
I think that that's what the Brewers were trying to do against Scherzer. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, the fact that that Grisham was able to work a walk early, I think, was obviously great. But the and I talked about this on the mini pod, so I don't want to get through it too much. But uh, the fact that like Thames was able to turn on a backdoor breaking ball on the outside part of the plate uh, says a a lot about his power. Says b a lot about the approach, and c a lot about you know how much the ball is flying, and. And that's what, you know, that's what Verlander was talking about early this year. He was just like guys being able to take breaking balls on the outside part of the plate and being able to hit them for home runs is something that nobody really has been able to do in the past. And this year it's kind of changed everything. So I think in terms of their approach and what they were doing with Hader or what they were doing with Scherzer, excuse me, it was right. And then, you know, we'll get to it. But Strasburg came in and he was awesome. Strasburg was amazing when he came in. Which, yeah, but I mean, you know, there's always that idea that like, oh, you're taking a, who was it? Smoltz was talking about it. Like, how can you move a starting pitcher to a relief role? They're going to struggle because they're not used to it, which is clearly, it's just total bullshit. Yeah, like, it is total guys bullshit. Know, guys know how to prepare for when they have to come out. The only thing you want to do in a case like that is, like with a guy like Strasburg, they showed him warming up in the bullpen a little bit, and he was going through a more of a long toss sort of deal. You know what I mean? He was he was clearly taking like his normal starter warm-up that he would do if he was starting a game, and relievers generally have that pared down a little bit. They're not doing quite the extensive full thing that they normally like a starter does to get ready to come into a game. So they needed to make sure like Strasburg was going to come in to start an inning so that he would have like a full defined set of time to get ready. But other than that, yeah, as soon as he came in, everything, clear, everything about a one game elimination game is unique. So I, yeah. I don't know why but, that would be. A and, but like that's and that's the biggest thing for me is being able to move a starter to the bullpen and just being able to do it in a one off game. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing about mentality wise. You need to like prepare yourself for it. But I do think there is something and we saw it with Willie Peralta to some extent last year, even though kind of he was just bad in general. But you have to be able to. If in your throwing plan, your uh, ability to warm up for games and all of those things to be Willie Peralta to... or Fre- Freddie Peralta? No, Willie Peralta. Last year when he moved to the was it last oh, year? Okay, moved... he was talking he... in Kansas City. Okay, I'm making sure that we weren't like just talking about different Willies who have no. struggled or different Peraltas who have struggled. And and that like Peralta, it was like this big thing that you were just like, oh, you see his huge fastball and you see the slider, and if he could just move to the bullpen, you could see a, a pathway to success, and he just. You know, he just couldn't do it. It just didn't really work. And you see, uh, you talk to a lot of guys about warming up for a game and and uh, transitioning, you know, from college to the pros where you have to start on a five-day schedule instead of once-a-week schedule. And then transitioning to the bullpen is a completely different scenario in terms of how you keep your arm fresh. And so I could see if Smoltz was like, I transitioned to the bullpen. It's a really weird thing that you have to completely change the way that you prep for games. And you have to change the way that you keep your arm healthy. I 100% agree with that. Um, but the idea that like Strasburg mentally couldn't handle coming in 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 like what the what was it the fourth the fifth inning sixth and and he just like couldn't handle that because it, in a one game scenario is yeah going back to Scherzer for a minute though the Brewers had him in positions where they could have knocked him out. I was really. Um, I was going to ask you, because you did the rundown for this, and you look like Scherzer was having a terrible game, which it's Max Scherzer. He can put out fires when they happen. He can, but he was he was in a, a touchy position in the fifth inning. The Brewers had two on, one out, and Mike Moustakis at the plate, and they left him in to face Scherzer for a third time. 
And I thought that was a mistake by Martinez. Yeah, I thought he was playing with fire, and he would have deserved a three-run homer at that point, which well, really would have hold put on the a game. second. I mean, you were just saying that you know, obviously Strasburg was going to get a clean inning to start, right? The Nationals don't have a great bullpen. They don't, but they have. I mean, you still have Sean so, Doolittle. Sean Doolittle could have been used lefty on lefty to get the out in that situation, and then you, you know. Well, to, yeah, but you're talking about in, in the fifth inning, and they don't know what's happening beyond that. I'm sure there was a little bit of a calculation like, this is Max Scherzer. Let's see if he can just get out of this. Yeah, but and, it wasn't it wasn't Max Scherzer at his best. The guy was and, getting hit, and he was giving up walks. I don't know. I, think, I don't think that Scherzer was particularly poor. But the other thing, too, that I think, and I know that a lot of, you'll probably roll your eyes on this, but like Scherzer, in some respect, has shown that he can handle those big big time situations and as well and you can trust him in that spot and also like we've seen what happened what happens when managers come out and try to take max scherzer out of a big a big game and he tells him to f off um and he so used like, the, he uses the green eye to like burn a hole through him <laughs> well there's like the there's like my favorite it's one of my favorite gifts of max is somebody's coming out I don't remember who the manager was at the time, but the manager's like walking out and you can read Max Scherzer's face. He's screaming at the manager where he's saying, I want him. I want him. And the manager just said, okay. And turned around and walked, and he ended up like striking the guy out. Um, but it's, that's fine. If you're afraid of your pitcher in that situation and you're, and that's oh, why you're making it. a decision. Stop, stop, stop. You, don't no. you know, the, the thing is, if you get in that situation and it's clear that Scherzer's coming out, um, you know, after that fifth inning, I would rather have Scherzer going all out to the remaining two batters he's got to face than try to bring some other reliever and hoping that he can, in a short appearance, bring the stuff that Scherzer has when well, he's got to, you know, get those final two outs. And you're basically then hoping whoever, because you you break you you are bringing in an unknown quantity, right, on any given day that we we know that relievers are volatile that just bringing in a reliever isn't necessarily better. So I agree with Steve on that part. But the other thing too, there is a piece of man management in terms of managing your players to understand that you have to be able to breed respect and you have to be able to, not about being afraid of them. It is about understanding who you have on the mound and the rest of everybody else that you have on the field. And if somebody is demanding that you trust them and is a leader on the entire team and the best pitcher that is on your team, sometimes you just have to roll with them for an extra out. Yeah, maybe, but I I still think that this is a case where if Mar if Mustakas hits a three run homer there, Martinez got what he deserved because Scherzer was not the command was going; it was not in great shape. But if hold on, and if you're the Nationals, wouldn't you rather say we went down with Max Scherzer on the mound as opposed to Doolittle? we tried to get fancy and it didn't work out? Sean Doolittle is fancy. He's one of the best relievers in the game. He's had a, a rough year, especially in like the rough second half. But like, so he was also injured for a large part of the second half, including a vast majority of September. And the other thing, too, is if you actually take a maybe a more positive look on it, you can say that actually what they might have gotten by trusting their best pitcher in a big spot was they got exactly what they deserved, and he was able to, to navigate his way throughout the rest of the inning. Yeah, I mean, it worked out for them. I still don't think it was necessarily the right call for them in that situation. Oh, right. But I'm I, also an advocate of going quick to the bullpen in an elimination game. You so you didn't want Woodruff to even go the fourth inning. So yeah, I was I was touchy about that. I thought that that was which, which maybe may a bit too far. 
I was going to call it earlier because you said that if Woodruff was uh, more like had more stamina and had pitched more that he could have gone deeper in the game. And I was like, you wouldn't have let him get through the third inning. Um, would have depended on the score. It would have totally depended on the score. So, like, and I knew the- and I knew he was coming out. He wasn't we knew he wasn't going to go like more than four. So we, there wasn't a question about that. It was a question of do you let him go one extra or do you pull him? one early if he was in in good health and it had been showing like he was going well that that question wouldn't be the same you wouldn't he be looking at it that same way he also didn't have any arm issues throughout the entire year he had no bleak issue that's yeah. different no no no. but you in this case you knew you weren't going to push him that far because he just hadn't built up that he hadn't built up the pitch count after having you know two plus months off so they weren't going to run with him for i and i heard some people saying this um well, why didn't they stick with Woodruff longer? You know, he could have gone through the fifth and sixth, and then maybe they wouldn't have had to have used Hayden. I mean, he and... threw 52 pitches. Okay. Mm-hmm. Woodruff threw 52 pitches. I think he had thrown 40 in his previous appearance. So this was just like kind of the next step. That is, yeah, that's a pretty. If you would have been. That's not, that, that's a pretty light progression. Like in spring yeah. training, they're going to go more than that from start to start. Yeah. yeah. No, they would in that case. Yeah. They could, you, can push like 20-ish pitches sure and he went 52 in four innings so he wasn't like throwing an extreme number of pitches or anything like that gave up two hits one earned a run because uh trey turner got into one which is what trey turner does yeah it is i think he's hit a few couple home runs against the brewers this yes year. he has um other than that he didn't walk anybody he had three strikeouts so it was a good it was a good appearance it wasn't a dominating appearance i mean he wasn't taking guys down himself he was in the the first couple innings there he was touching 100 on whatever their gun was showing was he was like touching 100 so he was clearly amped up and i think that that also would have informed their decision as to if he's out there throwing that kind of gas that they weren't going to push it too far with him like yeah i know if he's throwing well you don't want to leave him in because he might mean, he's get throwing hurt. with that kind of velocity he might think- get hurt. yeah do you think that the uh, the guns for playoff games are hot because every single year the guys are throwing like two, three miles an hour hot every single time? Yeah, it very well could be. I think it's more park to park than it is like playoffs versus non-playoffs. But I don't even know how they do that anymore. Like, are they where are they pulling that uh, velocity reading from? Oh, my God. You're gonna get, now, now you've inserted a conspiracy into Ryan's head. He's going to go cons- deep into this. I'm it just is. wondering. Like, it's going to burrow in. I don't know where they're getting it. that number from. So. But he was throwing hard. Like, See, we the conspiracy is probably that they juiced the gun so that way the Brewers were worried when uh, Woodruff came out throwing 100 and they wanted to make sure he didn't injure himself. So they were going to pull him early from well, the game. Well, it was, if it was truly a conspiracy, then wouldn't they like show him throwing like 100 early and then like all of a sudden ratchet it down so that like he comes out in the third or fourth inning when they want to get him out of the game and all of a sudden he's throwing 95 and like that would make the Brewers go, oh, no, we need to get him out of the game because his velocity's dropped. Because the team probably goes just by the gun that's uh, on the TBS broadcast. So, anyways, uh, JP, what was your takeaway from Woodruff's uh, four innings that he pitched? I mean, again, it it was good to see that they had that kind of anchor back in the rotation that they hadn't had for a while. Yeah, I mean, to be honest including Josh Hader, I think that Brandon Woodruff might be the best pitcher on the team. Um, I wouldn't argue because I would never say a reliever is the best pitcher on the team if given that opportunity. But glad to know you're on my side. Um, Steve yeah, also I, wouldn't let relief pitchers vote if he had his choice. So I think, Or breed. I think, <laughs> I think having Woodruff on, on the mound as a starter and the fact that even in a shorter 
a shorter appearance in which he wasn't going to see anybody the third time through, the fact that he was still able to rely on his changeup pretty regularly, the fact that he's going three pitches, that his uh, he's trusting his, his changeup, he's able to still go to his breaking ball, and the fact that he's still holding such high velocity, even if, you know, there was a conspiracy with the gun. Um, uh, and, like, to be honest, it, it, is, it is interesting. Like, every, if you watch what's happening in game-to-game game in, the, in the playoffs, um, every single pitcher is throwing harder than they normally do. And it could just be adrenaline, but I think it's, you know, I think it's Fox and TBS trying to pump things up. Um, and you've got a situation where I think if you go into 2020, I think Woodruff is clearly your opening day starter. I mean, unless they add something completely unexpected in the offseason, unless there's a major trade or something. Yeah, I think Woodruff is the opening day starter. You do know that if anybody starts opening day for the Brewers, that they're automatically going to have a terrible season and probably get hurt. This is science. I- I've heard that about Zach Greinke. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But yeah, Woodruff, I guess it, this leads into your little clever topic, Ryan. <laughs> you said... Oh, we already we already addressed this. It's fine. Question mark is, is he the ace that was promised? I mean, that... Because someone here watched Game of Thrones. <laughs> Great, way to go. Um, I don't know if anybody's heard of it. So there's yeah. Well, you might want to check a, it out. It's it a, on it's on HBO. I yeah, I believe all the episodes are archived. You can find them still. They haven't taken them down yet. Um, no, I, there's I mean, dragons and stuff. The thing with Woodruff is there's a lot of focus on the Brewers need to go and add like ace level starting pitching from the outside, and I think there's a good chance that Brandon Woodruff is that going forward. And th- he's not the only one who has the potential to be a good. You know, not necessarily ace ace starting pitcher, though. If you look at what Woodruff was before he got hurt, is that a new level? There's ace and there's ace ace. Yes, there's, two aces. Yes, there's there's ace and there's ace it's ace. Said deuces. <laughs> yes. Well, well, what I will say to that point though is, if you look at a team like the Astros, you definitely don't want more than one of them. No, I mean, <laughs> it's you would like to have as many good starting pitchers as you can get on your team. The question is, what you're going to have to give Jeez, up go on, to go get on there. a limb. Well, the question is what you're going to have to give up to get them. And, like, starting pitchers cost on the free agent market a lot of money if you're looking for a true race. Well, apparently what you do is you wait for the Pirates to get desperate and just (laughs) trade them all away. That that seems to be a strategy that other people have made work, yeah. But you you want as many good starters as you can get, but they cost a lot either in terms of trade or in terms of free agent dollars. You're going to have to pay for them. And so the the Astros are literally laughing at you right now. Because what they they did uh, they got Verlander at the waiver deadline. They got the waiver trade. They got well, yeah. He was a waiver trade, and he had had a good August, but was still like shaky Verlander from those couple years when he was dealing with injuries and things. And he was just wasn't nearly as shaky as everybody seems to remember it as being. When you go back and look at it, he was coming out of it, but he hadn't like firmly reestablished it yet. And now he's been like point being Verlander. You you say how expensive it is to acquire starters, and depending on the situation, the Astros went out and acquired three aces for a relatively little investment. Well, no, the they're paying Grinky a lot, and they had to give up a decent amount to get him in trade, too. So The only reason that they were able to get Verlander for what they got is nobody wanted to pay his contract. And the Astros said, yeah, we'll pay that. It's crazy when you can win World Series. Well, and it's and it's, it's the same thing they did with Grinky, though. That's the exact same story. Nobody wanted to pay that contract, and they said, okay, we'll pay most of it, and we'll give you some prospects, and they yeah, made but, that deal. 
But there is it's something that we've routinely seen across baseball. If you look at David Price was moved for uh, basically nothing because base because everyone was like, well, I don't really want to pay that. And I don't want to pay his contract, right? And then you saw that with Granky, You saw that with Verlander. If you are willing to pay, you are able to go and get quality pieces. If you are willing to pay money. And that's one of the key reasons why a lot of teams like the Dodgers and one of the key things that the Dodgers are willing to do is they say, we will eat money. We'll just eat it. And they're able to then go and get a lot of really good pieces. The Astros are willing to do it. And the reason why teams like the Diamondbacks have been kind of laughable in a long period of time is they were willing to give up good prospects to get rid of dead money because they weren't willing to eat it. And so... Oh, that was under the... You're talking previous regime, though. You're talking La Russa and... uh, Yeah, when they were were laughable. Stewart, Stewart, yeah. Yeah, because now they're they're a pretty well-run organization. They have a quickly emerging pretty good team. Yeah. And right. And that was, you know, part of the, the Goldschmidt trade at the time I was saying, actually, I don't really dislike the trade. I think both sides actually got exactly what they were looking for in that trade. And I, yes, you do potentially have to give up money to get good, to get good quality pitchers. But if you're willing to uh, pay the contract, you can actually trade for really good pitchers for like, not that much. Well, and it's worth talking about how they got Garrett Cole, too, because that was a, a totally different situation where the Pirates were looking to shed contract money. Let's not go totally off topic here so quickly. But yeah, they were looking to shed contract money, but also Garrett Cole had not had his breakout. And the Astros looked at Cole and said, we know how to fix him. We know how to turn him into a true ace where he hadn't been that with Pittsburgh. He hadn't shown that level. And so the Pirates traded him. Apparently, they wanted to get him out of the division. They didn't want to, because I think there were rumors of the Brewers and the Cubs were interested in him, and they didn't want any part of that. They wanted to get him out of the division. So they sent him to Houston for a a handful of magic beans, like four different guys, and Houston turned him into an ace, and somehow uh, the GM, Neil Huntington, in Pittsburgh still has a job, which... The Garrett Cole story is uh, a lesson in what happens when you decide that you're going to trade somebody no matter what. Yeah. That's so, true. anyways, getting back to the uh, wild card game, uh, Brent Suter came in and uh, pitched the fifth inning and was, I guess, surprisingly successful. Because I know going into the game, we were talking about how, hey, the Nationals hit lefties. And yeah. the Brewers went exclusively lefty out of the bullpen. And yeah. for the most part, it worked. Yeah. And it was it was really interesting because um, I did a a bit of a radio spot with with somebody in that was kind of like previewing the game in uh, in I think it was Nebraska. Uh, But we were kind of talking about what was going to happen and trying to like game out what was was going to go. And we were like, if you look at the three best relievers that the Brewers could go to, it's 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 Suter, it's Pomeranz, it's Hayter. And are they going to go with their best pitchers who by the numbers, all three of them showed that they actually had been quite good against lefty or lefties and righties over the course of the last couple of months of the season. And so in some ways you could make the argument that they didn't have the platoon splits that were there, or were they going to try to work in somebody like Freddie Peralta who actually was up and, and warming at one point and was potentially going to come into the game. So he was, he was in the mix there as well, but yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see that, uh, apparently they wanted Suter to put, maybe go two innings as well, but ended up only going one because of um, the kind of the fielding mishap. But I, yes, I think Suter is Suter going to move to the starting rotation next year. Or are they going to keep him in the bullpen? 
I think they're going to continue to do what they've been doing with him. And maybe he's their sixth or seventh starter to start the season. But I think they're going to try to open with him as this, you know, I guess a new version of Josh Hader that Suter, throws a lot softer. Suter's the, the Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Basically, whatever you need him for. Do you need him for a quick inning? Do you need him to go multiple innings in relief? Do you need him to start? I mean, Steve needs him to speed up a game, get things moving. It's great. I love it. Well, but I will throw, say, keep throwing. Just get on the rubber and throw the damn ball. Get the ball, they, chuck it. If they hypothetically went to, and, and they were hypothetically able to bring Pomeranz back, I mean, that would have, Knable probably returns, and I would argue probably moves back to the ninth inning if healthy. Um, then the vast majority of your good bullpen pieces are all lefty, which is a little bit strange. And Does it matter? I mean, Josh Hader's left-handed, but do you look at him as a guy who's like, oh, he's a lefty reliever, quote-unquote, which you were worrying about platoon issues no, at all? No, and that's why I was saying like the va all three of them didn't have the platoon splits, and so it'd be really interesting if they did commit to going all three left-handed, being like, yeah, they don't have the platoon splits. Um, I I mean, my, my own personal preference is I think that you would move Suter back into the rotation. I mean, it's it's a possibility. We'll see what they decide to do once they start stretching guys out in spring. But and also it's going to depend on what else they have, because I think you could make an argument that they have, depending on whether they bring Lyles back, but you have Hauser, you have well, and Chase Anderson, but you have Hauser, you have Woodruff, you have um, uh, Zach Davies. As like pretty much definite guys who are, but you be know, in between there. Suter Anderson, I mean, those are guys who have shown they they can throw both out of the bullpen and in the rotation. And I think basically you just kind of plug holes as you need to with those guys. Yeah, I think so. And I think that to your point that their bullpen's going to be pretty left-handed heavy. I think they also have Junior Guerra as a multi-inning weapon that could maybe be a counterpoint to uh, to Suter. If you have both of those guys in there that you're using on something of a rotating basis, or if you have a guy that you want to take a couple innings in the mid innings, that they could be the guys. So sure. Um, so uh, JP mentioned Pomerantz who came in and uh, dominated for two innings, um, which again he continued his just excellent stretch with the Brewers. So I mean, I guess it would be great to get Pomerantz back next season, but did he just make himself a lot of money on a national stage, basically showing that he's a dominant relief pitcher? Uh, a lot of money in relative terms. Uh, I still think he's probably able to be signed for under twenty million. Twenty million for how many? How many years? I think I would. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets like uh, two for two for eighteen, maybe three for twenty four. Yeah, I mean, and would that be something the Brewers... I Three for 24 seems like it's probably a beyond what the Brewers would be willing to do. So maybe that's... I it, have no idea. It's we hard don't to... Know. I was yeah, going to say... Maybe it depends because, what else they want to do. I say, maybe if they're being cheap, but that, like, in terms of annual... That's, like, $8 million a year. It's not much. I mean, if it's $8 million a year and they truly believe that, like, this is the new normal for Pomerantz as a relief pitcher, that's probably worth it. That $8 million a year is going to be better spent than you know, trying to find a starting pitcher that isn't going to live up to those expectations. Yeah, as JP's pointed out, though, he has had some injury issues. Like, he has a very checkered past that way. So, yeah, but you you're also managing the bullpen. But you're also managing that. innings, yeah, in the bullpen. So. Every single pitch. It's true. Yeah. 
some more than others though but but what we'll say actually i might be underselling it a little bit because Ottavino with who signed with the yankees signed for 327 and pomeranz has shown that he can go multiple innings so he might be more towards like the three for 30 range though Ottavino's he had more of a track record as a relief pitcher as well uh kind of he was also he also had an era above five in 2017 so oh was it that recently that he kind of yeah, I, mean, I mean he was good for a lot of years in a, like from basically 2013 to uh 2018 he was pretty good i don't think he had an era over four and then he had just like one absolute blow up year yeah if you want to be a little skeptical of of how big his market might get or actually like bullish on his market you could point to the fact that the brewers did have to give up mauricio dubon to get him which might indicate that there was more competition when the brewers traded for him than we maybe realized at the time because there was this flash people had seen what it looked like in the bullpen and it did look it turned out that that was what it really was like what it looked like in that brief stint with the giants is what it became with the brewers so maybe there was more competition than we realized and that would then portend to a a more uh, robust market for him in the offseason. We'll just have to see how it shakes out. I don't think anybody at the trade season was willing to trade anything. Well, the Brewers did give up Dubon for him, so. Well, right. Him and <laughs> Black. Yeah, but like if I think that at the time when uh, Dubon was traded, everybody was basically saying that Dubon wasn't a, an impact guy and then suddenly did well with like San Francisco and now. Well, it didn't help that the Brewers had a hole there in their lineup as well, which made following what Dubon was doing in San Francisco more of a yeah, but like thing to do. But if like we go back and actually talk about or and look at what happened after the Brewers traded Pomeranz, like there weren't a lot of people saying really great things about Dubon. So the fact that he ended up having a good couple of months and and showed something, I think, has kind of made us look back and say that maybe we paid a little bit more than we thought at the time. But well, and we've also seen Orlando Garcia come up late in the season for his uh, debut and have a good couple of months, and then you know, kind of a little bit more of a an expected Garcia. Uh, well, I don't I don't know if it was expected necessarily, but w- we saw I think offensive production that was. Uh, always a worry with Arcia as he was moving through the minors. Yeah, and I think that we also saw with Gene Segura where he had a couple of great months and then struggled for two or three years before he caught his footing again. So you're saying we need to hold on to Arcia and not give up, otherwise we could regret that going forward. I think right now is where you should play the uh, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend musical cue, Steve. Exactly. Um, so like we said, we, Strasburg came in, shut down the, the Brewers for three innings, and there's not much you can do about that. I mean, Strasburg's really good. Yeah, Strasburg was good. He did what you would hope that a guy in that situation would do, and there's not much else to say about it, I don't think. I mean, he, he was just he was really good. It is funny to, to hear everybody talk about the fact that, like, Strasburg should have been starting the game. That would have changed everything. And I was like, you still would have had to. They still would have then brought in Scherzer late in the game. And he's, not, like, not magically suddenly better because he's not pitching the first inning. Like, there was no reason that that was going to be any different. Um, but everybody kind of saw, and by everybody, I mean the the people on the broadcast and, and folks on Twitter and a lot of Nationals fans who were upset that Strasburg uh, wasn't given the nod. The plan still then would have been to go to Scherzer later, and so you still would have had a similar situation in which you had somebody struggling in the second half. But Strasburg's, he has one of the best curveballs in all of baseball. It I was going to say, when he, when he gets out there and you see that ball hopping when he's really on, it's incredible to watch. Yeah, and I think that 
we have had, I mean, at some point this year, we were talking about Garrett Cole for a long time, but like Strasburg had the best DRA in the entire National League this year. He he had a wonderful, wonderful year. He was incredible. Yeah, and he is a guy who can opt out of his contract. He has four years and I believe around $100 million left on his current deal. And he can opt out and hit the free agent market this winter. And I I don't know. I think there's a pretty decent chance he does it, especially because a lot of that money is deferred. So the, the real value of it is less than $100 million. But we'll see. I mean, the, the free agent market has been so weird lately. But he's a guy who has that choice facing could we, him. Could we just assume he signs with Houston? Strauss? Um, I mean, yeah, they're probably not going to bring back Garrett Cole at this point. So it, it was a it was a joke. I would imagine that the Yankees will be in super hard for Strasburg if he ends up get if he ends up opting out. Well, everybody thinks Cole's going to the Angels, so yeah, we'll see. No, oh, so Joe Joe Madden can be his manager. Oh yeah, we should probably talk about that. But no, anyway. we don't need to talk about that. We can <laughs> save that for later. Yeah, that is true. But at least he'll be closer to the vineyards. So. <laughs> Joe Madden, not Garrett Cole. <laughs> Yes, Joe Madden and his toilet wine. So uh, I guess this is the point. Do we want to relive that eighth inning? I, we got to. It we was some moral obligation. Okay, so the Brewers' plan is working exactly as they mapped it out. Yeah. Pomerant, you know, Suter got through his inning. Pomerantz was great for two. You bring in Josh Hader in the eighth. He blows through the Nats lineup the first inning, first time through, and then uh, – Hopefully closes that out in the ninth. Well, he got the first out. He did get the first out, and, and then, then and then all hell broke loose. Slowly um, though, it was a slow moving. It like, was accident. Yeah, it, it was. It was like we were getting each individual individual fingernail pulled out, just one at <laughs> a time. Each individual bamboo shoot going up yep. fingernails. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so we had the the hit by pitch was the weirdest thing to watch. You mean because it hit the bat knob first and not his hand? Well, it was okay. So. We get this hit by pitch that, you know, we get the review and you see the ball, uh, you know, we're like, oh, it clearly hit the bat. It moved like up into the left, <laughs> up into the, it, it paused so the shit yeah, out of yeah. that. It like the only way it didn't hit the bat first, it would have had to have like paused, you know, for a moment in the air and then hit him in the hand or whatever. So, yeah, this this whole thing, we're watching this replay and I don't blame the, the umps for kind of what the call was. It, it, it's the kind of thing that happens. JP, what's your view on that? Well, I think if you are saying what you need to do is see visual evidence that it hit the bat before the hand, I think it was really difficult to to tell conclusively. I think in terms of like if it was simultaneous, maybe it still could have been that. But I think if you use any common sense to say if the ball hit his hand first, he wouldn't have reacted in any of the way that he did in the entire subsequent. Er and so like. In some ways, you're like, oh, what is replay? Is it visual evidence? If it's visual evidence, I don't think that there was actually visual evidence to show that, you know, you, where you could obviously see that it only hit the bat and not the bat and the hand. But if you use, like, any common sense whatsoever, it was pretty clear. What that was Grant Brisby's line about that? That if the ball had hit his hand first, since hands are made of, like, 170 different Lego pieces, it would have just shattered and it all would have been gone. So, like, yeah, clearly it, it hit the bat first. It didn't hit his hand first. It did. But that kind of stuff happens, those breaks. But then those kind of breaks kept happening because Ryan Zimmerman comes up. He hobbles to the plate. He's like a broken Kurt Gibson. <laughs> a broken Kurt Gibson. A broken, yeah. <laughs> a broken Kurt Gibson hobbles to the plate. 
and his his bat is like his bones as he walks up to the plate as he he gets sawed off for, with the worst single I think you could possibly imagine. See, though, this is usually where I make these complaints and you get on my ass about it. But like, no, you're right. It was it was an absolute bullshit hit, and it was it was. I'm poor not contact. saying it was like illegitimate in any way. That it happens. happens. It's part of baseball. It happens, but that's when like you knew they were snake bit at that point going forward. So that that Zimmerman hit. I mean, JP, what do you do at that point? Well, I mean, in general, you would hope that you don't just step up and walk Anthony Rendon. Yeah, but I mean that was seemed pretty intentional. I mean, how much do you want to go in the zone to Rendon? No, I, it was. Oh, it wasn't okay. Wasn't, he's, okay, he's making jokes, Steve. And we're not think, joking about this inning. This inning is deadly serious. I know. I, I, you guys should have any pod in which you worked through your feelings already. Then you could have made jokes. <laughs> um, and so it was. It was. It was crazy though, right? Because you had Zimmerman, and if and and this is what. You know, the I best is they're like, oh, this could be Ryan Zimmerman's last appearance with the Nationals and all this kind of like bullshit going on as he hobbles to the plate. Yeah, well, I mean, he he has dealt with like foot issues all year and and is it probably is his last uh, this offseason or this postseason is probably his last tenure with with the Nationals. And he's been a great player for them for a long period of time. And I, you know, if you bring Josh Hader to the plate or to the mound, and you say, what are the risk issues? Everybody says, well, he might walk a couple of guys, I guess, but the real issue you're looking for is a home run. As long as he doesn't give up a home run, everything will be fine. Uh, because the odds of him kind of messing up multiple hitters in a row to being able to, you know, to the, to the point that you could give up three runs are so small, and it took a hit-by-pitch that wasn't really a hit-by-pitch it took a broken bat sing- single that, like, if you threw that pitch another hundred times, I don't think would have ever happened again. That result, it took, uh, it, it took a walk, and then it took a defensive misplay that also, if you did that another hundred times, probably wouldn't have happened again. It was just this confluence of things that, by all accounts, uh, Hater didn't deserve, and you know, like, it sucks. Well, and then they so they they bypass Rendon, and they clearly were not gonna like give him something in the zone to hit. And to get Soto up, and this is the matchup you want. It's lefty on lefty, and you've got a young kid. Now, granted, Soto is like a mature beyond his years hitter, but you've still got that lefty-lefty matchup. And what was interesting is I was talking to a guy who played some college ball, a coworker of mine, and he was saying he was watching it with his kid, and he said to his kid that um, if there's a ball above his hands, you will not see Soto swing. And on the first, it was either the first pitch or the second pitch, he swung on a ball above his hands. And the guy's son was like, Dad, you were wrong about that. Like, he did it. And he's like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. Like, that, yeah, you, you wouldn't expect him to do that. And so the whole thing was weird from the get-go that, like, Soto is up in that position. And what, he, what's, what's the theory about not swinging at a pitch above your hands? Um, basically that he's disciplined and that he's not going to, he's not going to go at that pitch because it's not a pitch he's going to hit, right? Oh. That's not a pitch that he is going to have any success with. So he is too disciplined to do that. So at that point, you, you'd think that he's going to be kind of dead meat and he wasn't. So yeah, I think pseudo was up there doing the C C fastball hit fastball routine. Well, yeah. And then in fairness, that's what you got to do with, especially if you're a lefty. 
especially well, if you're a lefty, you got to do that with Hater. And if you've and if you've got the kind of hand-eye coordination that Soto has, um, you know, I think you you trust yourself in that position to say the only chance that I'm going to have in this situation is just to to look for a fastball, key on it, and hit and swing. Yeah, and and ultimately that's what he did, and he got the single, which was the second single by a left-handed batter all season against Hater. He'd given up some home runs. I think at least Freeman he gave up one. And I think there was another left-handed batter in there that he also gave up a home run to. But mm-hmm. it was only his second single all season. This is not what you expect. No, no, not at all. Um, so, yeah, he gives up the single. And it looked like it was going to be a tie game there, regardless, because uh, Nats brought in a pinch runner for Zimmerman. So, the, you know, they didn't have the slow-footed... Uh, who came in? Who was your pinch runner? It was uh, was it Stevenson? They're yes, out. Stevenson, fifth outfielder. Was it the freeze? <laughs> Doesn't Might everybody have, have the freeze? Or no? Who 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 else? I don't I don't know. There was another, but there was like another minor league stadium that had something similar in which the participant who was like racing the freeze pretended like he couldn't run, and so like was kind of. Uh, kind of sandbagging it basically and kind of limping and pretending like he was hurting and then the freeze ended up passing him and then the dude just like turned it on and passed the freeze down at the end and ended up celebrating because the freeze kind of like pulled up being like I just dominated this dude and the dude just like booked it right by him right at the end one of the best it was that's like not related to anything to the game but sometimes you need like nice things we need we need levity when we're talking about this game so um anyways yeah it 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 looked like there were two runs coming in regardless hater had blown the game at that point yeah i mean grisham did and try to make a quick play well and that's that's what got them that's basically what got him into all the trouble was grisham basically was going to try to make a play to be a hero in the outfield and it ended up being just a brutal error on his part as the ball goes scooting by. Um, now, people have sent video, and I've actually heard this talk nationally, too, that that ball took a weird hop and did like a little skid. Sure, but he also got a, the way he approached it, the way he was coming around it, even with the weird hop, like he was way out of position on that ball. And, I don't know and, how he would have gotten a good throw on it either. The reason you position your body more differently is because those weird hops and skids happen and you keep you have your body in front of it to stop it, which also uh, did you see who is the who is the center fielder for? Was it uh, was it Michael Taylor by the time or, or Victor Robles? I don't remember who was the, the center fielder for the Robles. Nationals in the ninth inning, but ended up getting that, uh, there was like a single to center. I think like Lorenzo Cain ended up hitting a single to center and he like dramatic, like knelt in front of it, put his whole body in front of it and, and like fielded it. It was my, like, as I understand, it was also like a depressing game, but that was like the best troll job ever to be like, I am getting my body in front of the ball. This will not go by me. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how much of a troll job it was versus we have a one run lead. We and need to make sure that, that one, that one base runner does not get on second base, thereby making a single, a potential, yeah. you know, tying hit either. The ball was basically done moving by the time it reached. Oh, him, sure. It, it was a, it was just an elaborate thing. It, made me laugh i've i've played softball i've done that before when you're when you're not talented you're like i'm just gonna get my body in front of it and make sure that nothing bad happens here and i i don't want to look like an asshole so uh that's kind of what happened um 
So I and it it was the kind of play that you just feel awful for Grisham on because clearly he was trying to make a play in a big game, an elimination game. Mm-hmm. He's a young kid. You wouldn't even expect him to be there except for the fact that, you know, you're dealing with injuries to Yelich. I mean, Braun's been injured. Uh, and Kane's been such- injured. I mean, you know, and he has done a great job filling in for them, a lot better than people expected. Well, Andy had a great performance to get himself in the conversation to even be there in the first place. Yeah, so uh, we do have a question from Joe Rasmussen, Joe Rasmussen, and he asks, uh, should Council have had a defensive replacement for Grisham uh, in that game? My instinct is that Perez or Taylor would not have been a significant defensive upgrade. Does that track? Basically, was there a better option out there than Grisham at that moment? I mean, Perez, hell no. Like, you don't want to do that for a guy who hasn't been playing much outfield, period, lately. Uh so you definitely don't want that. This is one of those things. Trent Grisham is a fine outfielder. He is a solid outfielder. This is not something you would expect from him. He He's not a, a bumbler. He's not a guy that is going to have a lot of problems out there. They have put him in center field when Lorenzo Cain's been out as their preference over he, Ben Gamble. He's a fine corner outfielder. He can cover the ground. He doesn't have a big arm, and he's not a center fielder. He doesn't have a big arm, and he's not a guy you want in center field daily. Yeah, I would say actually his defensive run save metrics in all three outfield positions have been above above average in 2019. It's small samples, so I mean take it take it with a grain of salt. But the the point is, I think that Joe's right that I think Grisham's just fine in in right field. No, this this to me this kind of criticism, um, and this isn't what Joe's saying. Joe's kind of repeating some things that he'd heard, uh, and I don't think there's been a lot of this. Yeah, I mean, if you want to dig around, somebody doing that stuff. If you if you really lived in this wild card loss, then maybe you saw all of it. But I mean, it wasn't just like blown up everywhere. Should Trent Grisham have been in the game? Yeah, I mean, there's that comes down to a well, he's a rookie and he made a mistake. There must have been a better option and like reverse engineering it. Right. That's that's where something like this comes from. It's he was fine to be in the game. It's doing exactly what everybody does every time a reliever makes a mistake. It's exactly that, yeah. Yeah, what was the question you had on here? Should Hader have come out? Oh, should should Lyles have come in? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing about Lyles, because Lyles was warming. In I was joking, eighth. because the answer is no. Oh, no, you definitely do not put Lyles into the game. No, but I, I heard a bunch of this from people, that, that Hader should have been pulled because he clearly wasn't finding the zone. You should add a quicker hook on him, because... I think Josh Hader has earned some mistrust from people because he I enjoy how you heard that. You heard this. What? You mean you saw people tweeting it? Which no, I had multiple people. They're say probably this. Russian bots tweeting you. <laughs> it was multiple. This co-workers. is how they're going to break you down before the 2020 also, elections. They're mul- going to complain about reliever usage. Multiple, the- multiple people at coworkers said to me, "I can't believe that they left Hader in there." So, but the, like, it came from real people. About, the thing about Hader is. Everybody talked about him, and he was so good for so long that anything but perfection at all times is a failure. Exactly. All people expect out of relievers is perfection every time. Oh, and when no, they no, don't no. do it, it I mean, it's a failure. I mean, yes, but that is trumped up to the nth degree with Hater. If everybody says if he is so good, if he is not perfect, that he is somehow a failure. Yep, and it's what you heard with him after the game on Saturday night against the the Rockies. Same deal. People saying, I, mean, I can't believe he blew that game. If you had to guess, what was his ERA this year? Um, 2.3-something. Steve? Uh, yeah, under three. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was about 2.6. Um, 
and it was interesting because I was doing um, a different a, a different podcast uh, about like fantasy stuff, and everybody was kind of talking about the fact that like Hater was more of a liability than people thought, and like he gives up a ton of base. He doesn't. His whip is point eight. Like on the the whole year, in terms of how many walks and run uh, walks and hits he gives up per inning, less than one. His strikeout rate for for guys who have thrown as many innings as he has in his career, so like a minimum of whatever two hundred innings or whatever it is, his strikeout rate is like three or four percent higher than any pitcher in big league history. Like right. he just is something that like baseball hasn't really seen before. Right, but I think that a lot of the criticism is is all he is is strikeouts. He's either a, he, if he doesn't strike somebody out, he's it's because you know his command is bad and he's going to walk guys or he's going to give up home runs, and it's either all it's all or nothing, right? <laughs> by if the that's way, your skill. That's a hell of a skill to have. By the way, and I know we've brought up Verlander before because Verlander was great this year. Verlander gave up thirty six home runs on the season. He did. Yeah, that is one of your best starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. Gave up thirty six home runs and thirty four starts. Mm-hmm. So the idea that Josh Hader is somehow supposed to be immaculate, I mean, it's this home run issue for Josh Hader is not just a Josh Hader issue. No, and we've talked about that uh, so yeah, much. Yeah, we've talked that, about it a lot. But yeah. I, but there's still the rep that like, oh, Josh Hader's a great reliever, but he gives up home runs. That's like his thing. And it's like, well, no, that's basically baseball in 2019. Yeah, did we want to do the Spitz question or the Noonan question? Both are about Hader. I don't, if you want to, I'll let you do it. Should I read it? Okay. Uh, so this is from Jason Spitz. According to Fangraphs, last year, Hader threw sliders 20.7% of the time and was on balance unhittable. This year, he's down to throwing sliders at a 15.4% rate, and he's been less unhittable. Guys are clearly sitting fastball. Why would Hader even think about moving away from the slider this year? Because it's been bad. The quality of the pitch has been lower? Yeah, I don't think it was actually that good last year either. And guys are sitting more. I mean, I think the other issue is that, you know, the most success that guys have right now pitching is basically sitting high in the zone. And you're not going to sit high in the zone with your slider. So why would you bring a ball down and give guys an opportunity to square it up when basically you can keep your fastball high in the zone and get those swings and misses? Yeah, and I don't think in this game that's what the issue was here. I don't think this was a, a lack of sliders or whatever. It was his fastball command was he was having an off fastball command game. You could see he was missing high a lot, and I mean, guys weren't swinging. You know, at we it. say he's having an off game, but you got to remember this is a playoff team, and it's a good hitting playoff team. So, yeah. a quote unquote, and off he was getting game, the top of their lineup. He yeah, got the top of the lineup. A quote unquote off game is basically you're you're also facing just a team that has more disciplined hitters, that has hitters that you don't want to make a mistake to because you're going to pay for it. So, uh, of course, he's going to be around the edges of the zone more so than when you're just facing a, a Pirates team that's giving up at the end of the year. Well, and the other thing, too, to think about his slider is he's only thrown a slider in the zone about 40% of the time this year. Less than a coin. And when, and when he doesn't put the slider into the zone early in an account or early in an appearance and you see that he's not locating the slider, I've noticed, and it wasn't in these games, but I've noticed in other games, where the hitters then are like, okay, we are totally free to set fastball now. We do not have to worry about that slider in the slightest. So, Well, I think part of it is the slider's thrown to basically, okay, here, we're, we're changing up the speed, you know, and now you have to at least think about it. Well, I think it's also he can throw the slider low in the zone, whereas his fastball shouldn't really be thrown low in the zone against right-handed batters. 
So that's where he gets into problems is if that fastball's down and in to righties and you have a guy like Marwin Gonzalez, JP was talking about earlier, that he can like tee off on it, that's a, that's a problem for Hader. And he's going to have to figure out maybe work on developing another pitch and see if he can find something that is a better offset for that fastball because I don't think the, the slider is a great pitch working off of that fastball. The way he uses that fastball up in the zone, you were just talking about this, Steve, that the way he pitches that fastball up in the zone and where it needs to be to be effective, that's not where you want your slider to be. So maybe he needs to to work on something else and see if he can come up with something else that that would work there. Uh, perhaps a changeup would really be a valuable pitch well, to him. Well, but I mean, I think if his command of that slider was better, then it would be totally workable. If he could hit you know, that low low area in the zone with it it would be fine but when you don't know where it's going and he makes mistakes up in the zone with it obviously it's going to be a, a more hittable pitch so i mean jp what's your view on it i guess i think the most interesting thing about the conversation about his slider is when he has thrown in the zone he's hardly given up any hits on it all year just because nobody's looking for the slider i mean he's given up i think three hits all year on the slider including a home run so it's not like he, it's been hittable, it's just the fact that he can't throw it for strikes. And it also undersells how good his, his fastball has been. I know that everybody's frustrated that he throws his fastball a lot, but like his swinging strike rate on his fastball is just as good as his slider, which is an insane thing for, to be true. I mean, his swinging strike rate on his fastball is almost 25%, which is... I think like the league average for a fastball, a four seamer is like 8%. As you say, it can't be over 10. <laughs> and so it's almost four times, it's almost three times as much as the normal fastball that you see, which is, is insane. And I think if he could throw his slider more often, that's great. But the largest part of what Hater tends to struggle with over the course of an entire season is being able to throw strikes consistently. And the fact that he gives up a home run every once in a while with his fourth seamer is just kind of the lay of the land, exactly like Steve is talking about these days. And and we're going to kind of have to get used to these things because teams understand that they're not going to be able to string together base hits. So every single hitter going up, aside from like the occasional dude who just can't like hit home runs. And so they're going to try to spray something to the opposite field. Every single hitter is going to go up trying to hit home runs on Josh Hader, just absolutely everyone. And so if he want, if he's able to develop a slider that he can throw for strikes consistently, then he, like his effectiveness is even better, but his slider as currently constructed is not good enough for him to be able to rely on to throw strikes. It just, it isn't. I mean, he's throwing it for strikes about 40% of the time, which is less than a coin flip. Yeah. So we have a question, a uh, Patreon question from Jeremy Natchman. He has, he says, I was at the game in D.C., and I feel like the game was not as devastating as everyone is making it out to be. The game was at best a toss-up uh, coming in. Two runs felt hardly safe. I kept watching for insurance runs that never came. Council seemed to make all the right moves. So I guess overall, it's hard in these single elimination games to like kind of keep a level head about it. Um, do yeah. you think... I would say that, but that's exactly what, and so like I talked about a little bit on the mini pod, so I don't want to get through it again, but the hardest part about the game, and I agree that it's not a devastating loss in the context of the Brewers season, right? Like Ryan talked about that beforehand, but in terms of the game, the reason why it was so difficult to to take is that everything went right. Every, you, like 
there wasn't a mistake. There wasn't a mistake in the game plan. It was just uh, some freak things happened in the eighth inning. And then there wasn't a defensive mistake by somebody who was trying a little bit too hard. And like, how do you deal with that as a fan? And the vast majority of what we see is everybody goes back and relitigates everything and says, you know, should they have done something differently? Should there have been a different pitcher in? Should they have brought Lyles in? Should they have let Woodruff go the fifth inning? And, and like, we try to go back and say, where was the mistake? And sometimes there's not a mistake. Sometimes just like shit happens. And that's one of the, and that's one of the big reasons why Ryan said that he didn't want it. He didn't want the wild card game in the first place is because it happens and you are much more comfortable if you can get to a situation which you have five games to level things out um and it's something in which i think it's a good thing to have more people in the playoffs i think having allowing more teams to be able to to be in the hunt is a really positive thing for fans i mean it's certainly something that allowed us to enjoy the playoff game and it was it was a fun game uh, against the nationals but in terms of like a one game play a play in is it still is pretty stupid at the core of it right like you could allow yourself to have more wild card games but you know they don't want to necessarily do that because of length of schedule and a lot of things yeah i i think that this sums it up best and i'm just going to read it because it's so good uh grant brisby wrote about this on the athletic and um his his number one point from the game is the wild card is still a cruel, cruel demon lord. And he wrote, playing 162 games only to lose in the nine innings that followed will never feel okay to the losing team, nor to their fans. Uh, the regular season is like climbing a mountain for six months, forging through oppressive heat during the day, setting up camp in blizzard conditions when the sun goes down, eating whatever meager food you can carry with you, and then getting up to the next day and doing it all again. The wildcard game is like getting nearly to the top of the mountain, only to find a robed wizard screaming, name all 50 state capitals, quick. And really, that's, that, that is what it is. You can't compare an entire season of what they went through, all the things, the ups and downs, whatever, to pulling nine innings and saying, that's what's going to define your season. It's not fair to the team. It's not fair to anybody. It's just the way that baseball has set itself up right now. And it's, it's silly. And it's fun. I mean, I always enjoy it for every other team that goes through it. I was going to say, watching the wildcard games when you don't have anything invested in it is always just like, it's wild. It is just like, these are the crazy games that you see in all other levels of baseball. When you're watching college baseball, when you're watching kids in high school, and little league and stuff like that, where you aren't playing like longer series, like this is the way a lot of people come up playing baseball is you have a single elimination or maybe yeah. you get to play, you know, get to play back in, in a round robin or something like that. But it's so odd for um, major league baseball, yeah, major league baseball and professionals to go it, through it. It's also too to like think about this in a, a little bit broader context, exactly what happened to the Brewers and the fact that they were able to make the postseason by not really making too many moves over the summer and they were kind of able to back their way in by getting in a hot streak in the exact right time and then they still lost in the wild card game is exactly why more teams are not doing things in the in the, the trade season. It really is. It They're a perfect example of why teams are, are cautious and careful about how they expend their resources during the season and and in the off season, because they just don't want to, because this applies to free agency as well, that teams just don't want to. But again, they, they have gotten too conservative with that. I mean, the Brewers did not look in a great position at the, the trade deadline. Did the Brewers get too conservative with it? 
Well, I mean, people are saying that they shouldn't give up Mauricio Dubon because they're going to need a shortstop of the future, and Orlando Arcia is not the guy. But so are they you made that? they made a short term move basically to improve their ability to get in the playoffs this season, but, and it made people but, mad. But my own point about the Dubon thing was not that it was a long term issue; it was the fact that they needed somebody at shortstop this year as well, and but, they did. They did need someone at shortstop this year, but they need someone at shortstop next year and the year after that as well. Right now is what it, we're looking right. at. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the the entire idea that they were like doing Pomeranz to be able to, you know, take a step forward for the playoffs this year, by definition, allowed them to not be able to internally fill their their hole at shortstop. And they were banking on the fact that Pomeranz was going to be so good in the bullpen that he was going to be more valuable than being able to upgrade their position at, at shortstop. And it ended up being that way. And like kudos to the team for being able to like see five innings of Pomeranz as a bullpen guy and say like, well, dude, but that's the thing. A lot of teams wouldn't make that move right now because they'd say, yes, maybe Pomerantz will get us into the playoffs right now, but we don't want to give up, you know, this possible, basically they can build for the 2021 fantasy baseball but, season, Ryan, yeah. like you used, <laughs> like you like to do. But like my, my point on it wasn't so much about the trading future for now. It was the fact that they were saying the, the solution for now was based on five innings of work. Oh, sure. No, no, no. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm saying the Brewers definitely took a different track on this. Most oh. because you could say the Brewers were conservative at the deadline, but that is clearly a more aggressive move than what a lot of teams are doing right now because they feel like the wild card is too risky. Well, and if you want to look at what ended up happening with the Cubs and how they absolutely capitulated down the stretch, uh, they did nothing at the trade deadline. Oh, no, no, no. Hold on. Nick Castellanos was a, a very solid move and he was really productive for them. It didn't end up. It did not address the holes in their system. Well, the, but the other thing that they did, they did go out and get Craig Kimbrell in June and spent, you know, 50 million plus on him. So, Absolutely. but they didn't, they, you can still add, you don't, it's not just like Kimbrell. And then they were like, well, guess we solved all of our problems. In the yeah. Market. If anything, the Cubs have the money to go out and sign a guy and they can make additional moves to, to bolster their ability to get in the post if i was if i'm a cubs fan though guys i'm not you're kind about, of cubs fan adjacent though i am cubs fan adjacent but, but if i'm a cubs fan i'm not worried about what they did in season my problem would be more with like the structure of their team and what they did long term rather than what they did in season which i think was you know, kimbrell was an overpay but he, him being this bad was not expected and castianos was a very savvy good pickup so well he was way better than expected um but there was also the entire discussion, and, and not to get into it too much, but the fact that everybody in the Cubs fans were like looking at Pakoda and, and baseball perspective and be like, you didn't really expect us to be this bad. Look at your win total was wrong. Baseball perspectives looked at you and said that you're, the reason why you are going to struggle is the high leverage piece of your bullpen. And that when they went out and got, got Kimbrel, they expected that everything was then going to be solved. It wasn't because it wasn't just one pitcher. And then they went out to the trade deadline and ended up addressing something that didn't need to be addressed. And the fact that they had already the bats in internally, even if you look at Nick Horner, they had the bats internally to come in and be able to address these things. Ian Happ was still internal that they could have turned to and they could have gone and actually addressed main issue that all projection systems and anybody who watched them this year which was the high leverage piece of their bullpen and even when they got Kimbrel it was still an issue and they refused to address it because they didn't want to expend anything because they were like wild card not worth it 
Yeah, I mean, the, the Brewers have looked at their bullpen and said, we have Josh Hader, but that does not make a bullpen complete. No, they they've, have, they've clearly added gone every out year. and added more pieces when they've lost pieces like Canable uh, this year. They, it wasn't like, well, we can get by. Well, and they went out and added Joachim Soria for a substantial, you know. Every season. They did it. Yep. And two years ago, it was, um, oh, Swarzak. Well, so and because we started with Swarzak. If you look at what the Brewers end up looking at every single year, it's the fact that they were saying, how do we maximize our run differential? And they said, we need to have a dominant bullpen. If you look at what we have for our starting rotation, you need to have a dominant bullpen. And you have to have a dominant bullpen that can have multiple guys going multiple innings. And that's exactly what they went to go get. If you look at Jacob Faria, you look at uh, Pomeranz, and you look at bringing Suter back in a bullpen role. All of that was about getting multiple guys who could go multiple innings over a course of it, which is why, like, the way that they, if you, and this is something that Steve, I think, kind of, like, identified as well, is saying that if you actually look at what they used in their bullpen, they didn't use that many guys. They just used a lot of guys who went multiple innings over uh, over an extended period of time. Like, you could have had a bullpen with seven guys, and they still could have done what they were doing in, in September. It's the fact that they can go multiple innings and have all of them go multiple innings that allows them to do what they're doing with their their uh, rotation. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what they do in this offseason to, you know, bolster the rotation from within. Hopefully Corbin Burns figures it out um, and can come back next year and be successful, you know, or go out and find somebody outside the organization. There's going to be a lot of discussion about that this year. So I guess any final thoughts about the wild card game before next season we do, or next season, next episode, we'll do our, our season, season wrap up, which last year, you know, it's funny looking at, looking at the schedule going forward last year, we had how many weeks where we were talking playoffs where this year we got to figure out how to fill all this stuff going forward. Yeah. And then November is going to be really, we're going to be like, well, now we're still waiting for stuff to happen. We've already previewed it all. And yeah. We can so. wait, wait for the MVP announcement. So I guess, JP, any final thoughts on, on, on the wild card game here? The wild card game, I think it, it shows a lot of things to be positive about next year. And I think it still shows what the, the organization wants to do to be able to uh, create a competitive team next year, that how they want to be able to create a bullpen and how they want to be able to create a pitching staff to allow them to kind of construct a... Uh, a roster that allows them to kind of like take advantage of a lot of guys who can fill a lot of different flexible roles. Um, and so if you look forward to next year, uh, I still think if you look at the the wildcard game, even though it was really frustrating in a lot of ways, there are a lot of things to be positive about going into next year. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that this was a team that the second Christian Yelich went down for the season their postseason, even if they could get there, which seemed to be really a long shot at that point, and it turned out not to be because they faced such a soft schedule and they were able to to overcome it just by the, the depth of the team. But getting to the postseason then at that point, they were going to be substantial underdogs in every single series they would have played. So really, this was not going to be, without Christian Yelich, they weren't going to really have much of a shot at doing much in this postseason just because they didn't have the personnel really to do it without him who he was so important to the team so the fact that they lost this game instead of you know a division series in you know a sweep or three to one okay fine it that's fine like do we really think they would have gone through and, and beaten the Dodgers it would have been a really tall order to even compete against them given the team layout the way it was so it's disappointing. It's frustrating. You'd like to see them 
get back to this position next year with maybe, you know, more of a roster intact and not having so many guys who were hurt down the stretch. Yeah, because even the guys who were playing were playing hobbled. Moustakas was hurt. Thames was hurt. Uh, Kane was hurt. Hero was hurt. Like, all these guys had had significant injuries that were causing them to deteriorate on their performance to deteriorate. I was going to say, Braun might not have even been hurt, but, like, TBS was willing him to be hurt every single time he did anything. They, like, zoomed in on him to the point. They're like, is he hobbling a little bit? And you're like, well, it is, like, his 170th game or 163rd game or whatever the heck it is over the course of a year. He's probably sore. Yeah, I mean, he's a few years younger than me, and I'm sore, and I'm not even a professional baseball player, so, (laughs) like, yeah, so... Like I said, uh, we'll do our season wrap up next uh, next week, um, and then we'll also go through our prop bets. So hopefully Andy is available. Um, otherwise, we'll go through it either way. Yeah, we'll do that one way or another. We'll do it either way. Like I said, it was a good one this year, uh, and the one thing we had to figure out was a tiebreaker. <laughs> so we had a few tied at the top, so... Uh, we will give you those results next week, so definitely check that out. Don't forget, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mketailgate. Patrons at the Ball and Glove level and above receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast and the reporting is eligible weekly Packers preview. As always, follow us on Twitter at mketailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Podcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave reviews, and that helps people find the podcast. Thanks for listening, and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate.